Last week I told you to come on back. Don't, don't go out of town for Memorial Day weekend. You don't need to do all that. All right, you need to come on back to church. And you decided that you were going to show up. Thank you. Thank you sincerely. Today is uh, Memorial Day weekend. There's really not much else I can say. Uh, Aaron, excellent, excellent introduction this morning, brother. Um, tomorrow, we will remember with somber hearts the American military personnel who have laid down their lives in the line of duty. They answered the call to serve this country and paid the ultimate price, the laying down of their lives. Uh, Jesus said, when he was foreshadowing his own death, the own laying down of his life, told his disciples in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And we, we recognize the context that Jesus primarily says this in reference to his own laying down of his life for the sake of, of taking on our sin, that we could be redeemed so that we could have the forgiveness of sins. But we, we recognize the truth of this statement too. It takes a lot of love to lay down one's life for the sake of another. And there are American soldiers, American pers- military personnel, who laid down their lives in the line of duty, and that is who we will remember tomorrow on this Memorial Day weekend. And we, we know the source of all good things. And we thank God for their sacrifice. We thank God for their lives. We thank God for preserving this country and the Christian folks who are here to make the gospel known amongst us. This morning, I want to present to you a message. If you are a note taker, uh, number one, thank you for being a note taker. I strive to be a note taker, but I'm not very good at it. But if you are a note taker, I've got a title for you this morning. It's not going to be on the screen this morning, so you're just going to have to pay really careful attention with listening today, okay? Uh, this morning we have a title called The Fire Carriers. The Fire Carriers. If you're writing notes, you may want to write that down. That's your title this morning. Uh, The fire carriers, it is my goal this morning to convey to you the truths of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And as we uh, look at these verses, and if you have your Bible, if you would go ahead and open up your Bible to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 12 through 18. As you turn there, I I just want us to notice something here. Call it a main idea, call it a... Uh, a, a neat way we can kind of put a bow tie on the text this morning, a good way to summarize it in a sentence, right? Here's what we want to notice. The Apostle Paul exhorts the Philippian church to live their lives in such a way that reflects the marvelous grace of God within them, a way that shines bright against the darkness of the world, a way that leans fully into the grace of God and strength of God to be witnesses the gospel of Jesus Christ. In much the same way, I hope to encourage you this morning to carry this gospel message, this fire that God has placed within you to the world around you by His power. But here's what we need to define. What is the fire that we carry within us? It's the gospel message. It's the Holy Spirit who indwells within us as believers in Christ to live to the glory of God Uh, John 14, verses 16 and then 26, in this order say, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body as a believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Your body is not your own. And finally, Galatians chapter 5 details us the fruits of this Holy Spirit who indwells within us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this fire that is within us as believers in Christ is all-encompassing. It's not a quiet sort of flame that barely flickers in the corner of our hearts, but it's a flame that burns within us. It works through us. And when the church walks in unity with one another, if we remember from last week, that's where the Apostle Paul is going with all this unity as a body of believers. When the church walks in unity with one another, the fire blazes against the darkness of the world. So without any further ado, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. You're actually probably already there, but I'm not quite there yet. I apologize. Let me get there real quick. Philippians chapter 2, beginning verse 12, all the way through 18. It'll be on the screen. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Verse 16 holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we come before you this morning by your grace, by the blood, to sit at your feet and to learn. Lord, I pray that this morning you would give us ears that hear and eyes that see. Lord, may we give careful attention to your word this morning. May we consider it and all of its importance for our lives and the applications of our lives, Lord. And I pray that through it, by it, you would change our lives. That you would help us to to love you even more. That you would help us to love each other. And that you would help us to love those who who are not in the church. Lord, that we would be lights shining against the darkness. Thank you for Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. 
It's in his name. Amen. Amen. So let's go ahead and dive into the first of our three points this morning. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. We're going to see in verses 12 and 13, the inner fire. Verses 12 through 13, the inner fire. Paul wrote in, verses, in those verses, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Anytime you see the word therefore in the scriptures, you need to ask a question. You need to ask the question, what is that therefore, therefore? The word exists. You know, we spent a, we spent a little bit of money to go to seminary. I think that's the best thing I learned while I was there. That one, that one word, that one sentence, that one question. That word, therefore, exists to connect two concepts or statements together. Paul is going to connect the command of unity and the example of Jesus Christ to the daily lives of these Philippian believers here in verses 12 through 18. So, so in a way, the sermon from last week continues today as we continue to study this passage in Philippians. Y'all, I, I mentioned this last week, but we truly see Paul's heart for the Philippian church here. He calls them his beloved. These are folks that he genuinely loves and cares for. Paul has a sort of special tender affection for them in the same sense of how a father might view his children. And can I just say that this is the heart of a pastor, and this should be the heart of every pastor towards the church that they are called to serve, this tender, fatherly affection and care. And in a way that is certainly pastoral in nature, Paul is going to commend them, then command them regarding their obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you have always obeyed. So this is his compliment to them, his commendation to them. They're doing well in the area of obedience. But he commands them to obedience even more. And this is, this is irregardless of Paul's presence with them. Let me, let me just say this real clearly. Our obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ should not ever be dependent on whether or not the pastor, the elders, a deacon, our godly grandmother, or whoever is in the room with us watching. We don't obey God based on the people around us who have their eyes upon us. We obey God because He is God. And He is worthy to be obeyed in every and all circumstances. And we do so whether there are people around us watching or not. And we, more importantly, maybe I should say, we do this whether the folks around us agree with us or not. You might be saying right about now, Evan, where, where are you getting this obedience thing from this text? Look with me towards the end of verses uh, 12 and through 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So our first point this morning again is the inner fire. And this is where we see that. God is at work within the believers in Christ. He is at work within us when He saves us. He is at work within us to keep us saved. He is at work within us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the Word of God and to obey His teachings. This is the Word 
the work of God within us, which Paul says is of both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God's work within His people is not an abstract or distant or disconnected work. It's not something He just sets in motion and steps away from, occasionally checking to make sure that we're still on the right track or we're still following with Him or that we're still doing okay. His work within us is active, it is near, and it is a daily present factor in our lives. It is an intentional, directional work in which He works to make you and I more and more conform to the image of His Son. Do, do, please do not miss this. If you are a believer in Christ, then the living God, the Holy One, is working within you to bring about His will and purposes not only for your life, but for the sake of His kingdom and His gospel. This is something that ought to be able to give us comfort. But this is also, this is also why we are to give such careful attention to our lives. So much so, Paul says, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is not a working for your salvation. Rather, it's working as a result of your salvation. It's giving it the utmost importance of our lives, and it does indeed require our careful attention. It requires us to take it seriously. I think that's what Paul is getting at with this particular choice of words, fear and trembling. It certainly has some Old Testament uh, connotations to it, right? We, we consider different passages from the Old Testament, such as Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Certainly, and in some cases it is right to fear God. Let me, let me explain that before you grab your torches and your pitchforks. Jesus said, Do not fear men, but fear the one who has the power to destroy the soul. Now, if you're a non-believer, if you're not in Christ, if you don't know Jesus, you have every right to be mortally terrified of the living God. But the question is, how does this mortal fear, how does it take place? What does it look like in the lives of believers? Is it right for those who have taken refuge in Christ to fear mortally, in that sense, God? Well, yes and no. Let me explain, okay? Just stick with me. When we consider the character of God, however so briefly, we quickly realize that His power, His majesty, His wisdom, His holiness, His authority, so on and so forth, is far, far more than we could ever truly comprehend. It's sort of like standing on the edge of an ocean and gazing towards the, the water. It's utterly impossible for us to fully understand the magnitude and the depth of the ocean. We know it's huge, and we know that there are things lurking in there that could be dangerous to our health. 
We also know that it's very much so capable of swallowing us up. If you're going to the beach next week, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want to scare you. I don't want to scare the kids either. Just listen to your parents, okay? You'll be, you'll be all right. You'll be fine. But when we look at the magnitude and the depth and the mysteriousness of the ocean, it is entirely possible to feel fear towards that ocean. But when we begin to understand the majesty, the magnitude, the depth of the living God, and begin to understand a fraction of what He is capable of, then yes, I think it is entirely possible for the believer to feel a mortal fear towards God. But hear this, hear this, hear this carefully. The believer who takes refuge in Christ should hold no mortal fear of God for the wrath that God holds towards that believer's sin has been fully poured out upon Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. I mentioned this last week. I'd like to mention again, we enjoy adoption as children of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A child should not fear their father in a mortal sense, although we recognize that this is not always the case in our fallen world. But a child should fear their father in a reverential respect and in all type of sense. And this is the fear that believers ought to have towards God. We do not fear Him because He means to cause us harm or danger. We have safe refuge in Christ, but rather we stand in awe of Him because He is our Father. And we fractionally, imperfectly understand the magnitude of His mercies and graces towards us who are in Christ Jesus. You might think, man, this guy spent a lot of time in the first two verses. I hope the next two points go a little quicker. Well, they might. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Y'all ain't got nowhere to be, right? I've spent a lot of time in these first two verses because they are critical to understand as to what comes next. The inner fire of God works within the believer. Is absolutely the how of it is crucial to the working of the outer fire of God as He works through believers. Which brings us to our second point. If you're a note taker, you like to take notes, you may want to write this down. Verses 14 through 16, we have the outer fire. The outer fire. Verses 14 through 16 say, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. See, what Paul is going to do here is he's going to move from the inner to the outer as he teaches the Philippian church. We, we, might, we might today consider it an odd thing that he specifically commands them to do all things without grumbling or disputing. We, we saw last week how he is concerned with their unity and commands them to consider and treat each other as being more important than themselves. And, and the, that thought seems to continue here with the command to do all things without grumbling or disputing. The, the two words here are really interesting in the original languages. I'm not going to get too fancy with you this morning. But what these two words essentially mean, they, they mean the same thing but in different dimensions. Okay, let me explain that. 
Uh, the word grumbling here is this sort of secretive, behind-the-back gossip and slander that happens when there is a, a, a disagreement, but, but perhaps the personality of the person doesn't uh, lend itself towards open conflict. So this is, this is the secretive whispers. This is the secretive gossip. This is the, uh, this is the hey, did you hear about so-and-so? This is, this is what the grumbling looks like. This is when there is disagreement, but the person, instead of boldly uh, arguing about it openly, which is what disputing is going to lead to, uh, they, they do it in a more secretive sense. They do it from the shadows. The disputing is the more open, out loud type of arguing that is a lot more uh, obvious to others. And, and just for the record, let me make it clear, both are sinister and sinful in nature, and neither have a place inside the church. And here's why. You want to know why this is so important? The world is watching the church. I haven't, I haven't been here long enough to notice this specifically within Harvest, and I think it is a little different here because of our context as well. And if, you, if you're wondering about that, just find me after the, the service. I'll, I'll be happy to explain that. But I've served in three churches prior to coming to Harvest Church. And in each of those three churches, the church and the community, because of the longevity of the church, because they've been there a long time, the church and the community were just sort of tied together. What I mean by that is the church knew what the community was doing, and the community knew what the church was doing. Folks who never darkened the doors of the church building, knew exactly what was going on within those walls. They knew the good, they knew the bad, they knew the ugly, and many public opinions about the church is shaped based on what they see or perceive. I think that's why Paul writes the words that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God. Like, listen, our ability to get along doesn't dictate our status as children of God. God is the one who dictates our status. It it isn't dependent upon what we have done, praise God. It is fully dependent on what He has done. What Paul is getting at here is how the world perceives the church within their midst. Let me put it simply. Because I'm a simple person, I like simple statements. You can ask my wife, what does the world around us see when they look at our lives? What does the world see when they look at our church? See, we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted world, dead and sin, enslaved to Satan. It's the why behind why there are so many doggone tragedies ravaging our world today. You don't, you don't have to be an expert in world news or even local news for that matter to notice that there is an abundance of crookedness and twistedness amongst the generations today. Paul warns Timothy of the progression of the world in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And, and we won't read it this morning, but you can go back and you want to put a footnote in your notes there. You want to go back and look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, you'll see that essentially what is described there is this continually growing, seemingly growing, darkness and evilness within our world today. There is this continual progression of the world as it walks 
in darkness and rejects the gospel of Christ. And a generation that dwells in darkness needs a church, don't miss this please, needs a church that will shine bright for Christ. A church where the inner fire of the gospel that dwells within every believer is on display as an outer fire for the world to behold. When they look at us, what do they see? Do they see children of the living God? Or do they see a bunch of naysayers, backstabbers, gossips, slanderers, and fighting and disputing? What do they see? If you would, look with me in verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. If do all things without grumbling or disputing is the action, is the, is the what we do, right? Then holding fast to the word of life is the source of strength for it. And this, and this truly goes all the way back to verse 2 of this chapter. How are we to successfully consider each other as being more important than ourselves? How do we exist in community with one another without secret slander or open arguing? How, do we, how does the outer fire of our witness match the inner fire of the work of God within us? It is through the holding fast, standing steady, enduring and persevering in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anytime somebody asks me, what is the gospel? I, I love to go to Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we'll just read verses 1 through 4 together. There's a, there's a lot there. Well, let's just read it, uh, verses 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It is, it is so important, it is so wise for us to treat the Scriptures with the utmost care. But I want to offer just a gentle reminder this morning that by the time the Apostle Paul pins these words to the Philippians, the New Testament has not been written in its entirety, let alone compiled. The Old Testament scrolls were widely available, and surely the Jews living in Philippi would have been familiar with the Old Testament writings. Although if you go back and look at Acts chapter 16, you're going to find out that there's not, there's not a large Jewish population there at Philippi. So what, what is this word of life that he's talking about here in verse 16? Holding fast to the word of life. Can I, can I put it simply? The word of life is the gospel of Christ that these Philippian believers would have received from Paul in Acts chapter 16. The hope of the gospel that our sins have been forgiven through the outpouring of Jesus' blood on the cross of Calvary. And, 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 and how, I don't want to miss this, we are so blessed, and sometimes I think we take for granted that not only do we have the message of the gospel, 
but we have the Bible in its entirety encouraging us and helping us to know God more deeply and to walk in relationship with Him. But the Philippian believers didn't have the Bible in its entirety. They had the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is what they are called to hold fast to in order to show themselves as lights in the darkness. Y'all, this, this is how we are to walk with one another. This is how we love one another. This is how we endure with long sufferings the pangs of this world. This is how the fire of the gospel message is shown brightest. Listen, the church, the church clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hope that we have as a redeemed people through His cross. We're going to cover the last part of 16 verses 17 and 18, our final point this morning. But so far, just to recap shortly, we've done We've seen the inner fire, we've seen the outer fire, and now we see, and there's an, there's an interesting way I phrase this. You could go in a lot of different directions with this, okay? Just, you know, I'm not perfect, all right? I'm not good at grammar. You can, you know, ask anybody who knows me, okay? But our third point for this morning, if you're taking notes, I've, I've pinned it like this. The smoldering flame. The smoldering flame. Paul writes, beginning at the end of verse 16, going all the way through 18, so that, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run our labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is going to connect their obedience to the gospel with his happiness and joy. I mentioned this before. Paul is a, is a father figure to this Philippian church. He is the one who led the first convert in faith there in Philippi. He, he literally witnessed the birth of this church, and he is ecstatic when he sees them walking in the gospel. All the pain that he went through on their behalf will be worth it in the end. If you want to just get a just get a real, uh, just a picture of what that looked like for Paul, that pain he endured for them. Go to Acts chapter 16, just read that passage. You'll, man, he, he kind of went through it for them, okay? Notice his words. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In no uncertain terms, Paul says, even if it means I die for the sake of, of your faith, then I will gladly die. I wrote in my notes this week as I was reflecting on these verses that this is what the heart of every single pastor should look like. And I speak, I say pastor because I am a pastor. This is, this is the heart that I operate out of, right? I try to operate out of. A pastor ought to be willing to live sacrificially for the sake of his people. In many places all over this planet, that could possibly mean death. It certainly does mean, in many places, exclusion from society. It certainly can result in poverty. And certainly Paul endures all these things on behalf of the church, as well as enduring death. You know, I'm, I'm kind of tempted 
as a 21st century American who is a believer to read these words and lament Paul's sacrifice for the church. I mean, we certainly lament today when we hear of Christians suffering for their faith in Christ. We lament the possibility of persecution, perhaps even being fearful of suffering for Christ. But suffering for Christ and obedience to Christ was not a place of lamenting for the Apostle Paul. It was a source of joy. Truly, it was a source of joy for all of the disciples. Acts chapter 5 tells us, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Paul wrote in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. James chapter 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 1 Peter chapter 4 says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So perhaps when we suffer for Christ, no matter what that may look like, no matter what that entail, perhaps we should rejoice as well. Paul didn't want the Philippians to be sad for his suffering on their behalf. He wanted them to rejoice as well. He didn't want despair to seize hold of them as they learned of his suffering. He wanted them to rejoice despite the suffering. And this is where that smoldering flame comes in. The suffering of the Christian church is such a confusing thing to the world. We ought not to lament in suffering for Christ. Instead, we ought to, by God's grace, take on the attitudes of the disciples and rejoice in it. To count ourselves as blessed for having the chance to suffer on behalf of Christ. Satan will often persecute the church in order to put out the flame of the gospel. It is rejoicing in suffering and truly, y'all, fixating our hope on the gospel of Christ despite the suffering that keeps the flame burning for the gospel. That keeps that flame burning despite the fact that we live amongst a crooked and twisted generation. As I bring us to a close this morning, I want to recall the words of Paul here that he said in regards to suffering. We're going to look at two passages, and I'm going to pray, and Blake's going to come forward, and we're going to take communion together. The first passage we look at is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, where he writes the words, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, an absolute beautiful passage of Scripture 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, our distress, persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our danger, our the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Y'all, if you are a believer in Christ, His Spirit dwells within you. There is a fire within you that you have been called to display to the world around you, despite what that may bring you, despite what that may mean for your job or your family. Despite those things, He has called you to be that flame amidst the darkness. And there's that, that, I don't know about you, but that weighs on me. You're going, yeah, thank you. You get it now. <laughs> and I don't want to weigh you down this morning. I just want to remind you that we do these things by God's power. Like if we're relying on our own strength to, to somehow be this light, we're going to fall flat on our face every single time. We're, it's, we, it ain't, we ain't got it within us. We have to rely upon the power of God and His Holy Spirit, His power, holding fast to His Word. If we will do that, then we will shine bright amidst the generations that are twisted, that are crooked, that are lost and dead in their sin and who desperately, desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we praise you, for you are good. You are holy. You are almighty. You're loving. God, you're wise. And Lord, you are worthy of every single bit of our lives. From our thoughts, to the strength of our hands, to the blood that pumps through us, Lord, you are worthy of every single bit of it. Lord, may we live for you. This morning, Lord, as we have our time of, of reflection, Lord, as we sing this song, I pray, God, that our hearts would be tuned towards you. Lord, that we would be encouraged by the Spirit within us to live boldly for Christ. 
Lord, we praise him who took on our sin that we could be saved and redeemed, that we could be made children of you. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus, we pray these things together. Amen.